Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Today on the Virtual Voyage, we have a special episode planned at a little-known site in the Galilee called Hukok. We're going to meet back up with Dr. Jody Magnus, an archaeologist who gave us a tour at Qumran, another site in Israel. Dr. Magnus is one of the leading experts in the archaeology of Israel, especially from the time of Jesus up to the 10th century. And since 2011, she's been the director of excavations at Hukok, the place we're headed to today. And in fact, I've also spent a bit of time at Hukok because in the summer of 2022, I was a student participant for the Hukok Excavation Project. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that I'll never forget, and I'm excited to be back here for a tour. For now, we're just arriving at the site, so let's head on in. As a warning, be careful as we walk about. Dr. Magnus just finished excavations here with her team, so there may be loose stones and gravel on the ground. Just follow Dr. Magnus's instructions and you'll be fine. Well, there's Dr. Magnus, sitting under the shade of a tree. A wise decision. Let's go join her. Dr. Magnus, hello and welcome back to the virtual voyage. Thank you and welcome back to Hukok. Before we talk about your work here at Hukok, I think we need a bit of an introduction to the site. First, where in Israel are we right now? Give us a geographical understanding of where Hukok is situated. Right. So we're in the northern part of Israel, which is an area called Galilee. Uh, specifically, we are in a part of Galilee called Lower Eastern Galilee, which is basically the area off the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, we're only a couple of miles inland from Capernaum, which was the base of Jesus's Galilean ministry, and uh, Migdal or Magdala, which was the hometown of Mary Magdalene. So one of the things that I like to say about Hukok is that we're in the middle of Jesus Central, uh, even though Hukok is not mentioned in the New Testament, but um, it was a Jewish village in the time of Jesus. And so I think it's not unlikely that Jesus would have been familiar with Hukok and maybe even wandered through at some point. So along those lines, what's the overview of Hukok's history? When was the village first established? When was it in its prime? And did it exist even into the modern era? Yeah, well, Hukok actually has a very long history, and, and there's a there's been settlement there for many periods throughout time because there's a small freshwater spring at the base of the village, and that attracted settlement. Um, the the earliest um, literary reference to Hukok is in the Hebrew Bible, where it's mentioned in connection with the settlement of the tribes of Asher and Naphtali. But in our excavations at Hukok, we actually found artifacts that go back even farther in time to the early Bronze Age, so about 5,000 years ago. Um, and although we didn't dig you know, all the way down to those very early levels, uh, we do have evidence for occupation for most periods from that point on, right up until 1948. Um, by 1948, Hukok had become a small Muslim village called Yakuk, and it was abandoned um, when the State of Israel was established in 1948. As a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, you began excavations at Hukok in 2011, and they just ended this summer, the summer of 2023. Take us back to your decision to make Hukok the next place in Israel that you would excavate. Why this ancient Jewish village? What were you expecting to find here? Yeah, I don't know if expecting, hoping is more the word, but um, but I, I 
I started the excavations at Hukok um, because I was hoping to answer a couple of big research questions. And so here, let me back up a little and explain that as an archaeologist, uh, my goal is not to go and find treasure, which is what a lot of people think archaeologists do. Um, and as archaeologists, by the way, we don't get to keep what we find anyway. Um, everything that I find in Israel belongs to the state of Israel. Uh, but, um, but as archaeologists, we work as scientists. And like other fields of science, we um, conduct experiments, which we hope will answer research questions. Um, as archaeologists, we uh, we retrieve the data that we hope will answer our research questions by excavation, by digging it out of the ground. And specifically, what we look for are remains of human material culture, anything that humans manufactured and left behind, which will give us clues about um, about ancient life that that hopefully will answer those questions. So my two big research questions were specifically, um, what was the fate of Jewish villages like Hukok, which was a Jewish village in the Roman period, when the villages in this region, and this region was Jewish in the Roman period, uh, when these Jewish villages came under Christian rule, beginning in the fourth century, when the Roman Empire became uh, a Christian empire, the reason for that question is because many of my colleagues in Israel think that Christian uh, rule was oppressive to Jews and that these Jewish settlements in Eastern Galilee declined as a result. And my impression from the archaeology was always exactly the opposite, that these settlements continued to flourish and prosper even after uh, the rise of Christianity in the fourth, fifth and sixth centuries. So that was one big question, which just to get to the bottom line, I think we were able to answer, at least in the case of Hukok, positively, because we do have evidence of a village here that flourished in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries. And then the second question that I hope to answer concerned the dating of ancient of a particular kind of ancient synagogue building called a Galilean-type synagogue, which is best represented by the monumental synagogue building at Capernaum, just a couple of miles away. Uh, it's a specific type of a building, a big basilica, there is a controversy about the date of these buildings. Traditionally, they've been dated to the second and third centuries uh, based on architectural style and decoration. And I think that the archaeological evidence, meaning the artifacts associated with their construction, indicate a later date in the fourth, fifth and sixth centuries. So I was hoping to excavate a previously unexcavated Galilean type synagogue. Um, and answer that question. When we when we came to Hukok, there were Hukok had never been excavated before I started there. It had been surveyed, so other people have walked around and looked at it. Um, and there were indications that there was a Galilean type synagogue there, but again, we didn't know for sure, and and we didn't know if there was where it was located. So we were very fortunate already in the very first season of excavation to come down on part of the east wall of this very large synagogue building, and that really um, quickly became the focus of the excavation. We can see that excavations have mainly taken place behind us in, in the area of the synagogue, but I believe that you told us you didn't begin excavations right there. So where did you first start digging, and what did you find, and why did you choose to pivot to another area? No, actually, we did we did first start digging in the area of the synagogue. It was a little bit of serendipity. So what was the original, the original plan and this is what we did, in fact, was to excavate the synagogue building in the hopes that we found it. And we did in our first try, very fortunately. Um, and, and then it's a huge building. So, you know, excavation continued on it for years. Uh, and the other the other part was to excavate part of the ancient village contemporary with the synagogue. So we would understand 
the lifestyle of the people who built and used the synagogue. And we did excavate part of the ancient village in our first um, five seasons of excavation. After 2014, we we had to abandon the continuing excavating in the ancient village because the synagogue began to take up all my resources. I just didn't have enough money and 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 you know um, human power to be able to continue with the ancient village. So we we stopped excavating in the ancient village at that point. But we did we did have those two components already right from the very first season in 2011. We didn't find the first mosaics in the synagogue until the second season, which was 2012. But the actual wall of the synagogue, the east wall of the synagogue, we first found in, in our first season in 2011. So let's walk into the area of the excavations. And I want to give you a chance to talk about, again, the centerpiece of Ukok, the late Roman synagogue paved with, as you mentioned, those stunning mosaics. So tell us about this synagogue, its dating and history and especially why it's paved with mosaics, because when I first found that out, it kind of seemed strange, especially considering the Jewish command in Exodus to not bow down to any graven image. Right. Well, yeah. Um, so our synagogue dates to around the year 400 AD. We've been able to date it based on the associated artifacts, so pottery and coins associated with its construction, as well as radiocarbon dating of charcoal samples that we've taken um, from the bedding of the mosaics. It's a large basilica, meaning it's a big rectangular building with the short walls in the north and the south and the long walls on the east and the west. It's about 20 meters long, a meter is about a yard, um, and about a little over 14 meters wide. Um, inside it was divided by a row of columns that wrapped around the uh, west, north, and east sides into a central space called a nave with narrower areas called aisles around the three sides. And the original main entrance or entrances were in the south wall, which is the Jerusalem-oriented wall, which means that worshipers who entered the building would have entered from the south wall and then turned uh, completely around to face the direction of prayer, which in Judaism is towards Jerusalem. And that th these are all characteristic features of Galilean-type synagogues. Um, most Galilean-type synagogues, however, like the one at Capernaum, uh, have are paved inside with, with flagstone pavements, flagstone floors. So uh, it, our synagogue is, is a little bit unusual in having mosaics instead, uh, but it turns out that there are in fact a very small number that we now have of Galilean type synagogues that have mosaic floors. Now, the discovery of mosaics um, that, that are decorated with figured images, in this case, mostly biblical stories, comes as a, a surprise to many people because uh, of what you mentioned, the second commandment, right? But in fact, this is not a new discovery. The first ancient synagogues were just, you know, in Israel were discovered over um, over a hundred years ago. Uh, and since then, you know, many more have been discovered. And, and it turns out that many of them are in fact decorated with figured images. Even, even Capernaum, which doesn't have a mosaic floor, is decorated with some figured images in the form of stone reliefs, carved stone reliefs that decorated the, the building. So um, so this is not a new discovery. Uh, and, and exactly why you have this phenomenon, well, it's probably due to a number of reasons, but, but basically, apparently, you know, I mean, basically what you have in that commandment is a law, right? And laws can be interpreted differently. And so what you have over the course of time is, is changes in the way that Jews interpreted this law. And apparently by the time our synagogue was built and other synagogues like it, the law had come to be understood as not prohibiting the making of, of, of images in general for decoration, but specifically the making of images for worship. So you can actually rationalize and say, well, if I'm not worshiping the images, I can, you know, I can use them to decorate, right? 
And uh, this probably uh, probably happens at least partly in connection with the rise and spread of Christianity, because what you see at the very same time is Christians beginning to build monumental con congregational halls of worship and prayer churches, which they decorate with biblical stories that are the same biblical stories in many cases that the Jews are using, right, from the Old Testament. And so you have this sort of, you know, struggle over the over the, you know, biblical tradition, the appropriation of this heritage. And so probably there's, you know, that's contributing to the um, willingness of, of Jews to use figured art in their religious art and, and uh, even in synagogue buildings. As we continue our tour here at Hukok in Israel with Dr. Jody Magnus here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, Dr. Magnus, one of my favorite mosaics here at Hukok is the Jonah mosaic. But that one's a little bit strange. Yeah. Many know the story of Jonah being swallowed by a singular large fish. But the Hukok mosaic depicts Jonah as being swallowed by three successive fish. So explain why those at Hukok might have chosen to depict the story in that way. And also, if you would, share a little bit about the collaborative work that had to happen with scholars of rabbinic texts to understand this unusual depiction of the story. Right. Uh, by the way, the Jonah mosaic is also my favorite because it's got a lot of humor in it. It's very funny to look at. Um, but uh, but yeah, before I answer your question, it, I'm glad you asked about the collaboration. As you know, Abigail, I have a large team uh, that works with me at Hukok, and these are professionals who are responsible for um, working in the field and publishing the material that we excavate, and so they all deserve credit. Um, and so among others, you know, I have people who work on the architecture, who work on the painted plaster, who work on the pottery, the coins, the glass, and so on, all sorts of different things, um, the animal bones. Um, so among others, I have specialists who work on the publication of the mosaics. And so specifically, I have two scholars who have been publishing the mosaics. That's um, Dr. Karen Britt and Dr. Ranan Bustan. Um, Karen is uh, an expert in Byzantine art and specifically Byzantine mosaics. And uh, Ra'anan is a specialist in Jewish history and rabbinics. And so they've been working together, uh, publishing the mosaics from the synagogue, and they've done a great job so far. And I should mention that um, if any of your listeners want to see stuff that we've published so far, including pictures of the mosaics, most of them are published already. They can go to the DIG website, which is just whocoke.org, and I, I imagine you'll probably post that as well, but they can just go to whocoke.org, whocoke is H-U-Q-O-Q, -Q, and there's links there to um, all of our publications. Um, so why, why the three fish? So in some of our mosaics, we see um, an interesting phenomenon, and this you see in the Jonah mosaic, where uh, there's a little bit of variation on the biblical story, elements that are not in the biblical story. You see this also, we have a panel of the Red Sea where Pharaoh's soldiers are being swallowed by giant fish in the Red Sea, which of course is also not part of the original story. So these, these um, elements are what are called midrash in, in Jewish tradition. A midrash is basically an elaboration on a biblical story. So you know how it is when you tell a story and you keep repeating it, sometimes you embellish it, you know, elaborate on it. And that, that's basically what a midrash is. So, um, so sometimes these sort of elaborations on biblical stories got written down and we, we have them preserved, and sometimes they didn't. Uh, in the case of the Jonah and three fish, we actually do have uh, a written down version of that story, but it dates to a much later period. It was a number of years ago, a rabbinic scholar in Jerusalem named Tamar Kadari published a, an article about an 11th century 
Jewish manuscript, French Jewish manuscript, Jewish manuscript in France that tells the story of Jonah being swallowed by three fish. And so uh, now we can see that this story actually goes back at least to the late Roman period. And that's what got depicted on the floor of the of the synagogue at Hukok. Another special mosaic at Hukok depicts an episode from Judges 4. And this mosaic is one discovered the summer I worked at Hukok, and it was so exciting to uncover more of this every day until we finally had the whole picture in front of us. Would you tell us what this mosaic depicts and also why it's a unique archaeological discovery in terms of the artwork itself and the people depicted? Yeah, that panel, which you had the good fortune to see as it was being uncovered, is really uh, stunning, even though only, a, as you know, a small part of it was preserved. In other words, in, in this case, most of the mosaic panel was gone. Uh, didn't survive, but we have uh, a little bit around sort of one of the sides of it that are preserved. And uh, enough of it is preserved so that we can see what the story is. Uh, it's a panel that was divided into three horizontal strips or registers that tell a story beginning at the top and ending at the bottom. And the part that's preserved is the upper, most of the part that's preserved is basically, it's basically the sort of um, left-hand side of the panel, um, which happens to be the south side in this case. Um, and mostly the upper left-hand side and the lower left-hand side are what are preserved. Um, and so in the upper left-hand side, what we see is the biblical prophetess and judge Deborah, uh, who is um, under a, a palm tree, and, and that's very consistent with the biblical story, right? She was under the palm of Deborah, and she is looking at a warrior who is the Israelite warrior Barak, right? The Israelite commander Barak. And so this uh, story refers to an episode in Israelite history where um, the Israelites were being oppressed by the king of the big city nearby, Hatzor. And uh, he, um, and so what, what Deborah does is she summons Barak. Um, she's told by God to summon Barak and she summons Barak and she tells him that he is to um, gather the Israelite army and fight against um, the king of Hatzor's army. Uh, and so uh, Barak, by the way, turns out to be something of a weenie and he starts like whining about having to do this and finally agrees to do it if Deborah will accompany him. So anyway, he assembles the army and uh, they go and fight against the Canaanite army, um, which was led by a general named Sisera. And uh, the Israelite army um, defeats the Canaanite army. And Sisera flees and takes refuge in the tent of a non-Israelite woman named Yael, who was a member of another people called the um, the Kenites. And uh, this is what we see actually in the lower part, the lower um, left-hand corner that's preserved. So what happens is, is that, uh, that Yael welcomes Sisera into her tent, and he's very tired, and she gives him some warm milk and puts him to sleep, and he's sleeping. And as she's sleeping, she takes the tent peg, and she, um, she, uh, <laughs> she she thrusts it through his forehead into the ground and and blood starts gushing out she kills him with the tent peg uh by by driving it the the stake through through his temple and uh what we see in the in the mosaic which you saw is deborah literally um hammering the tent peg through the temple of sisera and you can see him lying prone on the ground and blood's gushing out of its head it's a very bloody a bloody and violent episode. Um, 
So it's a really interesting thing because it's, this is the first time that we've had any depiction in in um, in ancient art in general and Jewish art in particular of these two biblical heroines and this biblical story. So so it's very interesting. Um, it's also interesting that the congregation chose this episode with with focusing on two female heroines, right? But it is interesting to think why, you know, why this episode was significant to the congregation. And that's, you know, that's an open question. It is worth noting that 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 mosaic is at the south end of the west aisle of the synagogue. So on the other side, at the south end of the east aisle, we have another series of panels from the book of Judges that focus on on the biblical um, hero and Judge Samson. And so there's probably something going on with these two, you know, panels from judges on either side, you know, sort of across from each other. Uh, and this kind of interest on the part of the congregation in these um, these figures from the book of Judges. So those are some of the mosaics that stick out in my mind. But maybe take us through at least a few others and how you came to identify the story that the art was portraying. I was looking through, again, the mosaics that you have discovered over the years, and there are just so many. So maybe just a few of the, the highlights. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, for the most part, you know, unless we, we don't have enough preserved, and that does happen. There are places where the mosaics are very fragmentary and we just don't have enough. But in, in cases where we have enough preserved, with the exception of one panel, there really is no debate about what is represented in our mosaics, which biblical stories. So pretty much, ex again, except for one panel, they're all biblical stories. And when enough is preserved, we can securely identify them. Um, the, I, I, by the way, should should admit that I have learned a lot of Bible but from our mosaics because uh, a lot of the scenes that are that are portrayed are you know, stories that I wasn't necessarily all that familiar with. So I was sort of also learning as we went along, but every time we would uncover a new panel, you know, we kind of had this little uh, sort of um, internal competition going over who could identify the scene first, right? Um, who, who would be the first one? Um, I actually think it was Matt Gray who first identified the Deborah and Yael. So that kind of became a little like internal thing, but but really there's there's really no no debate about it. So we have, among other things, you mentioned the Jonah panel. I mentioned the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's soldiers basically drowning in the Red Sea. We have the building of the Tower of Babel. We have Noah's Ark. Um, we have the Samson scenes that I mentioned. Uh, we have a couple of uh, very interesting scenes connected with the book of Daniel, including the four beasts that symbolize the four empires leading up to the end of days. Uh, we have um, the showbread table from the Jerusalem temple. Um, some of the some of the um, we have uh, the peaceful kingdom from uh, from Isaiah 11. Um, and and in some cases, the um, the scenes are labeled with in Hebrew. Right. So there's no doubt about what they are. Uh, it's hard to know if originally all of the scenes were labeled or not, because, you know, it could be in some cases they were in the inscription simply or not preserved. But but in some cases, anyway, we do have uh, labels. So there's there's no doubt anyway about what they are. Um, but I but there is one panel, the one that has uh, attracted the most attention. Um, that is different from the others because it's apparently not a biblical story. In fact, it appears to represent the first non-biblical story ever found decorating an ancient synagogue. Uh, and that is a panel that we refer to as the elephant panel or the elephant mosaic. Uh, it's divided into three horizontal strips or registers, which get bigger as you go towards the top. It apparently tells a story that starts at the bottom and ends at the top. So I know of at least 10 scholars, well, so Karen and Ron published this mosaic, the elephant mosaic, as a monograph 
as a book, little book in uh, 2018. Um, and since then, I know of, I think, at least maybe 10 other interpretations that have been published by other scholars. Uh, and they they explored some possible interpretations. But anyways, there's a whole range of interpretations of this mosaic. I just received yesterday in the mail this volume, the latest issue of Dumbart Notes Papers, which has a big article about the mosaic in it as well with yet another interpretation. Uh, and so there's no no agreement ab among scholars about what it represents. There's no um, there there are no inscriptions in this in this particular panel. So um, hard to know what the people who made it had in mind. Uh, my personal opinion is that it represents the legendary meeting between Alexander the Great and the Jewish high priest. But again, that's my interpretation, and uh, everybody seems to have their own preferred interpretation. So it's you know it's really uh, it's really enigmatic. I think it's going to continue to attract attention and speculation. Um, but I do think that no matter what you think it is, it's it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, again, apparently the first non-biblical story, meaning story not taken from the Hebrew Bible, uh, that's ever, or Old Testament that's ever been found in decorating an, uh, an ancient synagogue anywhere. Um, and number two, if, if you look at it, if you're, and again, if you go to the website, you'll be able to see pictures of it. And, and by the way, National Geographic also published this uh, this mosaic um, on their website. And in a white way that you can zoom in and look at the details, it's really great. Uh, and, and so if you look at it, you'll see it's of extraordinarily high quality. It's just a really, it's a piece of art. And it's really stunning and surprising to find a piece of art like this, such a high quality mosaic, in what was basically a rural synagogue in Galilee, you know, around the year 400. So, so it's a, it's an important discovery for many reasons, uh, and it, it's not surprising it's attracted so much attention. Beyond just the synagogue and the fantastic mosaics, you also discovered an enormous stone paved courtyard to the east of the synagogue. Yeah. The average person might think that sounds very unexciting. But why was this courtyard such a monumental discovery, especially in the context of surrounding synagogues in this region of Israel? Yeah, so you you missed most of the courtyard. You had a little bit of it the summer you were there, but we uncovered most of it this past summer. We didn't even get the whole thing. I mean, we're done we're done now, but we didn't finish with the courtyard, so somebody else will have to do that. But um, but it it's really uh, spectacular. It's just a ginormous. Uh, I realize that's not a scientific word. Courtyard on the east side of the synagogue that had a a pair um had a portico around it, meaning that the sides of it were had porches going around. Um, and uh, it's it's a little bit unusual. Um, usually uh, when these kinds of synagogues, this Galilean type of synagogue has porches on the south side, which is the Jerusalem oriented side, which was usually where the main entrances were. But there is another parallel to this, and that is Capernaum. Capernaum is, is very similar. It has a courtyard also on the east side of it. So again, we find ourselves very similar to Capernaum in many ways, uh, albeit Capernaum doesn't have mosaics. Uh, and by the way, our our courtyard is bigger and nicer than the one at Capernaum. But who's counting, you know? So uh, so it's another you know another very interesting part of the site. Personally, I've begun to wonder if maybe more ancient synagogues of this type, the Galilean type, might have had courtyards on their east side, and they simply haven't been excavated. Uh, for example, this summer I took the the whole team to visit um, a, the Galilean type synagogue at Farbar Am, which is all the way up north. And uh, there you see the synagogue building; it's very well preserved. But the area to the east of it was not excavated; it's all grassy now. And I just wonder—I wonder if maybe there too. So, 
it could be that that other ancient synagogues, other Galilean type synagogues had courtyards like this and they just haven't, you know, nobody looked for them or excavated them. So it would be kind of interesting to to find out about that. In our case, the the courtyard on the east also then makes sense because the elephant mosaic is on the east side of the synagogue in, in the east aisle, sort of in the middle of the east aisle. And there was apparently a, a doorway there. So there was an entrance also from that side. So um, so that then makes sense of this big courtyard on the east side of the building. The Hukok field excavations are now over, at least from your end. After a decade of work at the site, what are some of the big takeaways? What have you learned about the history of Israel and the Lower Galilee region? And have discoveries at Hukok shaken up any formally prevailing hypotheses? Oh, yeah. So, so first of all, the basic controversy about the dating of Galilean type synagogues is ongoing. I mean, first of all, the fact that that we can date the Hukok synagogue to around 400 doesn't prove that all Galilean type synagogues date to that same period. It just means that our synagogue does, although it means that you can't automatically assume that Galilean type synagogues date to the second or third centuries based solely on criteria of style and, and decoration. I do know, I'm pretty sure that my results, our results, have not uh, persuaded um, all of my Israeli colleagues about the dating of these buildings. Uh, and uh, the reason why I stopped now is because we have to publish our results. I mean, we published we published a lot of preliminary reports, but ultimately we have to publish a, a big detailed scientific report and uh, putting that material together and getting it published is literally a process that will take years. And that is the ultimate responsibility. I like to explain that the goal of archaeology is not excavation, but it's publication. Excavation is how we retrieve the data, but then we have to um, publish the data. So um, ultimately, uh, what we're hoping to do is, you know, publish a proper scientific report. Um, and that will then make it possible for uh, for my colleagues to uh, look at our results and to judge and see if, you know, they think that that our claims about the date and other claims about the building are are founded or whether they disagree with our interpretation because it's all about interpretation of the excavated material. You know, for, for most of my colleagues in Israel, especially, you know, the big thing is the mosaics. I mean, everybody, the mosaics for my part were, were kind of a byproduct. I wasn't looking for mosaics, you know, uh, but, you know, it's hard to kind of ignore them and, and they are really, really important. And they are changing much of what we understood about Judaism in late antiquity. Uh, and so I think that, in, you know, the big thing, the big takeaway is probably the mosaics, even though, again, for me, that wasn't the main thing. Uh, and then we have a whole a whole nother level that I really, you know, probably don't want to go into. But, you know, we have a reuse, a rebuilding, expansion and reuse of the synagogue building in the late Middle Ages around the early 14th century. The building was rebuilt as a synagogue building and expanded and used as a synagogue building. We published that also. There's a link on the website. Uh, and if we're right that this uh, early 14th century building was a synagogue, it's the first late medieval synagogue ever discovered in an archeological excavation in Israel. So it's uh, no less important actually than the original late Roman synagogue. So there's, you know, there's all sorts of things. And of course, I think big picture, uh, the fact that our synagogue's built around the year 400, it's built around the same time that the village houses were built and inhabited, again, contradicts this picture of, of an overall Jewish decline under later Roman rule, under the rule of what had become a Christian empire. It is not to say, however, that the Jews were happy living under Christian rule, because if you look at the motifs that were selected for the mosaics, which stories did they choose, right? A lot of them are stories that, that um, 
sort of reinforce the message. This is my interpretation. I mean, I don't know that even Ron on and Karen agree or, you know, but to me, when I look at them, uh, they're stories that sort of reinforce this message of biblical stories where God rescued his people in the past through various agencies, either directly or indirectly. So you think of the parting of the Red Sea, for example, um, or through through his agents, if it's Deborah and, and Barak or if and Yael or or Samson, for example. So a lot of the episodes seem to sort of highlight um, God's redemption and salvation of his people. Um, and also kind of looking forward to a, a future world that is not this world, that is uh, the world to come. And that we get particularly, for example, with the um, with the Daniel mosaics, the mosaics from the stories of the book of Daniel and the four beasts um, and the peaceful kingdom of Isaiah 11, right? So even as these Jews, this community was prospering and flourishing under Christian rule, they were, I think, looking forward to a future regime that would be different. Well, lastly, Dr. Magnus, if listeners want to learn more about you or Hukuk, how can they do so? What is that website? Oh, yeah. Well, there's two websites. So I have my own personal website and there's the Hukuk website. So the Hukuk website, they should be linked, by the way. But anyway, uh, the Hukuk website is very easy, hukuk.org. So Hukok, I know it spells, it looks really weird in English. It's because of the way it's transliterated from Hebrew. It's spelled H-U-Q-O-Q, H-U-Q-O-Q.org. And then, you know, they'll see links to our publications and to media coverage and so on. And then my own personal website is just myname.org. So I'm an org. Uh, so it's just jodymagnus.org. Dr. Magnus, thank you for joining us today on the virtual voyage. I'm so grateful to have had the chance to work under you at Hukok. And I'm happy the Virtual Voyagers also got a chance to learn about the site from you. Thank you for having me, Abigail. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue our adventures in the land of Israel. <laughs>